0: Well, we're hiking off the main road today, so you're gonna hear some gravel, a little bit of leaf crunching, uh, the leash running in and out. It's one of those retractable ones. So I hope you enjoy this version of initial thoughts. There was a column in the New York Times this morning by a guy named Bret Stephens. He seems to be one of their house conservatives and uh, he was going on about uh, a column that was titled Communism with Rose-Colored Glasses. Mostly it was an attempt to provide uh, a historical perspective to those who seem, he claims, to romanticize Fidel and Che Guevara, uh, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, uh, and others on the left who had done dreadful things. And he. Uh, lectures in the column about the Soviet famine in 1932 and so forth, basically saying how come you guys don't know about this, as though he would know what is in other people's minds. Nevertheless, he's making a false equivalence in my mind. When I was a graduate student, one of my professors essentially said that when you look at the political spectrum from right to left, it's not actually a straight line it's in the shape of a U which means that when you get to the extremes suddenly those who reach that level of political activism and and particularly power tend to look just like their fiercest opponents at the other end of the spectrum Uh, fascists and and communists in power act in the same ways and this by a guy who was a true dyed-in-the-wool leftist he was clear-eyed about the violence and repression in the Soviet Union, uh, in China, in Vietnam, <laughs> and so on. That stuck with me because I think extremism as a, a point on a political spectrum is highly problematic because you're willing to do anything to achieve whatever your goal is, including, and especially, violence. And if you're in power in, let's say, the control of a country, then you're willing to commit that violence on a mass scale, whether it's pogroms or wars or whatever. Part of the challenge is you don't necessarily respect the rights of certainly the people on the opposite end of the spectrum, but also none of them in the vast majority in the middle. It's that collapse of the middle that worries a lot of people now. In the early 1930s, the uh, middle part of the political spectrum in Germany Uh, failed in parliamentary elections and the president at the time decided that he needed to uh, bring in somebody who at least had a plurality of the vote. That was the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler as the leader and he became the new chancellor. Of course the president didn't care or didn't know that uh, Hitler had murderous intent and certainly moved quickly to establish first an authoritarian regime and eventually a dictatorship. And then the nastiness really began when World War II started with the implementation of what Hitler called the Final Solution, the extermination of Jews and any other people in Europe that he thought subhuman and certainly not up to the Aryan ideal. Well, are we at that place today? Not really. We still have a mostly functioning constitution. Um, We still have rules that we're trying to adhere to. A rule book that we say, that we uphold, and we're using those rules to figure out how to operate as a country and a society. But there are some troubling issues on the horizon: the use of power to enrich the rich, the use of power that emboldens the powerful. One of the issues that Bernie Sanders and and others have made is that Wall Street makes money by manipulating money. If you read the books about the great crash, you look at the financialization of the American economy, and that is a substantial part of our wealth is now tied up in speculative ventures, particularly on the stock market, but also in the bond market, in mortgages and the like. It was that speculative bubble that was the thing that caused the crash in 2008, and that was completely predictable. With the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in the late 1990s, the separation between normal banking functions of uh, checking accounts, savings accounts, mortgage lending and the like, and investments in companies for business development and speculation was removed. It was really only a matter of time before the economy produced a speculative bubble and they always burst. If you look at financial panics through history, you find that in the United States, they're relatively absent between the New Deal and 2008. Oh, they're minor ones, but nothing that causes anything more than a recession, um, and usually a mild one. But in 2008, we were headed to a world-class technicolor depression, except for very quick action by President Obama. And the Democrats in Congress to essentially stabilize the economy and pump a lot of money out there so that the demand would salvage the economy from bottoming out too far. We did much better than countries in Europe that decided that they wanted to have fiscal austerity, meaning they weren't willing to to deficit finance to the extent that we were in the United States. Their economy suffered more greatly than ours, but the fact that ours did not go down as far as it could have actually benefited them. So in that sense the economic activity of the United States helped prevent the full-scale and depth of a global depression that would have made the 1930s come back again but this time, as I've said, in living color. So do deficits really matter? Some people are criticizing conservatives on the right because they're pushing for tax cuts that can blow the deficit, meaning that we will add perhaps trillions of dollars to the national debt in the next 10 years because they're removing the revenue sources from the federal government and not having compensatory cutbacks in spending. Well, if you had to choose your poison, tax cuts with deficit spending are better than tax cuts with spending decreases to the extent of the tax cuts. But it doesn't mean that they're right, and it doesn't mean that they're fair, and it certainly doesn't mean that they're wise. Tax cuts that primarily benefit the upper tenth of 1%, that is, the people who own 40% of the wealth and, and get that proportion of, or more of income each year, does not necessarily spur economic growth. It certainly does not create jobs as the White House keeps contending. And it certainly does not add four to $7,000 uh, in a middle-income families. Uh, salary through the tax cut, because one, their taxes aren't being cut that much, and the White House claims that these tax cuts will prompt an economic surge in job creation because companies will have more money to invest. The problem with that scenario is the ability to borrow money today is easier than almost any point in the last generation. Yeah, it bottomed out a couple of years ago when the Federal Reserve rate was (laughs) at or around zero. It's it's a couple of percent, I believe, right now, if that. So the ability to borrow money if you need to expand your business is f- pretty easy and fairly cheap. And if you have some amount of success of your, of your business as a result of a tax cut or investment in job creation, that's great. You'll more than make up for the cost of borrowing the money. But the challenge is... When you look at the big companies, Apple, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, etc., their job creation money, if they wanted to use it that way, which they don't, is already there. They already have enormous amounts of cash locked up in bank accounts all over the world. And they have actually literally more money than they know what to do with. And so they pour it into things like new innovations, another new iPhone, that has some marginal benefits over the previous one. Amazon keeps experimenting with drones to be able to speed up delivery. Uh, They buy grocery store chains like Whole Foods uh, and so on. Is this actually creating American jobs? In fact, is it creating jobs, period? Well, some, particularly somebody's got to build those iPhones, but they don't build them in the United States. But are they creating jobs? No, not really. They're making money. Uh, No question about it. So if they got a tax cut, meaning the corporate tax rate is reduced to the extent that administration wants, are they going to plow that money into creating new businesses or expanding their business in order to employ more people? No. At least not if they can avoid it. Labor is a cost. It is not an asset. Labor is something that they look at as a cost to be reduced, not increased. And so if there is any increase in productivity, if there is any increase in business activity, it's going to be based on current staffing levels and, in some cases, the introduction of robots, whether they are dumb or smart, to push forward the production cycle to a faster and faster rate. So if the tax cuts go through, which is starting to look like it's a possibility, what are the consequences? Well, there certainly won't be a major increase in employment based on those tax cuts. If there is any increase in employment, it'll be because demand continues to rise a little bit. And actually we've seen in the past year that the economy has been modestly recovering. But the question becomes, for whom and how much? If you used to work in a steel plant that's been outsourced someplace else or automated, and now you're working in the service industry, chances are you've seen a major decrease in your salary and benefits. So yes, there may be people who find new jobs, but they're mostly going to be in the service sector, they're not going to be the kinds of jobs that made America great, meaning manufacturing. And service sector jobs, for the most part, are low-wage, low-skilled kinds of work. High-skilled service sector jobs are in the data analytics and the computer side of things. If you're a 55-year-old former steelworker, chances are your understanding of analytics is going to be limited, and your prospects will be as well. So. Let's go back though to the tax cut itself. What <clears throat> will these people do with the money? Well, chances are they're gonna use it to make more money. They're going to invest in the stock market. And I put invest in quotations here because what they're really doing is using money to make money. Part of the reason of the that the financial bubble burst in 2008 is the hair trigger speed at which trading took place. People were li- literally developing approaches and connections so that they could beat competitors in trading by mere milliseconds, if not nanoseconds. And the idea there was, if they can understand the market a little bit faster than somebody else, do their buying and selling in anticipation of market moves, then they can win no matter what. Whether the market goes up, market goes down, they make a little bit of money on a huge volume of trades that are impossible for a human being to do. Meaning, all of these are done with, the, with computers, not with the help of computers, with computers, running algorithms that look for movements in the market that can be exploited within the second. This is not going to make new jobs. It's going to make some people richer, but they're already rich. Now, if your view of economics is that, well, that's okay because somebody's getting richer, I got a problem with you. If your belief, however, is not so futile, that is, The economy exists for the benefit of everyone, then we have some things that we need to talk over. We've shown through history that the way to increase employment and even uh, increase wages and benefits is to spark demand. That is, you get money to the people who will spend it on consumer goods, on buying cars, on buying houses, and so forth. The idea is you don't give the money or get the money to the people who don't need it you get it to the people who will spend it. This is a euphemism for poor people. People who live paycheck to paycheck, and sometimes not even that. And if somehow they were able to receive a little bit more income, they would spend it. They won't save it for a rainy day because it's already raining. For some, it's actually pouring. For the middle class, well, they have been the engine of economic progress for generations, particularly in the last 25 to 30 years. If you look at worker productivity over that period, it has gone up and up and up in an almost unbroken chain. But when you look at income salary from that labor, what you see is a very much more modest increase, if that. In fact, it's been flat. So where's the difference between the income of the workers and the worker productivity? Where has that increase gone? It's gone to the people who own the companies. It has been for the benefit of the shareholders, not the workers. That's the fundamental problem that we have in capitalism, is that frankly, going back to Marx, the problem is those who own the means of production benefit and those who must work with their hands essentially get left out. They don't receive the benefits to the extent that the owners do. Whether they're stockholders or proprietors, it doesn't really matter. It's ownership separated from effort. Does that mean I'm a Marxist? Only if you believe in the words of Groucho, the only Marx who really mattered. Karl Marx, the one that people tend to think of when you say the word Marxism, was a great social critic. Karl's prescription was essentially, wait, the internal contradictions of capitalism will cause it to collapse upon itself. The idea that the rising productivity of the workers is not rewarded. They eventually will revolt and they will bring down their capitalist masters and will have a classless society and history, in effect, will stop. Nonsense, as subsequent events have shown. Every time Marxist ideas have been put into action, what you're trying to do is is make lemonade out of oranges. Sure, you're going to make a juice, but it may not be what you're looking for. So, Marxists in Russia, in China, in Vietnam were able, usually through warfare, to gain power and then bring about their classless society. Human misery was thus amplified for a very long time. My adherence to the teachings of Groucho notwithstanding, that's why I'm not a Marxist. Because Marx was a great diagnostician, but in terms of treatment, he was a really bad doctor. So what's the solution? Well it's not at the extremes. It's not at the extreme left or extreme right or the even near extreme left or extreme right. And you have to remember in the American political system the middle is actually pretty far to the right on a global spectrum of political economy. Bernie Sanders would be a a slightly left of center politician in Europe and in other places that have a multi-party system where people can more easily express their desires and their wishes. In our two-party system, it's probably significant that he is a registered independent, meaning that he doesn't join either political party even though he tried to get the Democratic, nation- Democratic nomination for president. And thinking that Bernie Sanders is a violent extremist is quite absurd. When you look at his record in his home state as as mayor, as, as senator, he's a fairly pragmatic guy. He's just doing it from a particular perspective that's pretty close to the center, close enough anyway that he can see it. The problem is we're now being governed by a party that has been captured by a very strange variation of the right wing, a party that has decided that nativism is actually nationalism Patriotism is saluting armed force, that justice is something that needs to be called for, but dishonored in action. If you're poor, if you speak Spanish as your native tongue, if you have dark skin, in the United States, you're in bigger trouble than normal because the guys in charge have set your counterparts who are white against you, and they're using and exploiting their situation for their own ends. Trump said he would drain the swamp, when in fact, if you look at his appointments, his actions, and his appointees' actions, he's pouring a lot more sewage into the swamp than ever before.